Lifestyle choices and environmental factors impact your brain health and the physiology and psychology of your mental health. When you're ready to turn your brain on to get your game on, listen to In Your Head Radio. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. everybody, this is Sandra Beck and I'm here today with Lee Richardson and we are doing a simulcast because this topic is so important that we're going to run it on Lee's show and my shows so that we can get the word out because something is happening since we've opened up from lockdown and Lee, I've seen so many acts of violence. You know, I was I was flying on an airplane a couple weeks ago and three guys got on. They refused to wear their masks. They were hanging their feet in the aisles so the flight attendants couldn't get their car, you know, up and down the aisles and they were giving them so much grief and I I couldn't believe what I was seeing cuz I have flown for 30 years and the idea that someone, three people, would act so egregious in a public place. Now, they were all arrested when they when we landed in Los Angeles, but it made everyone frightened on the fight. We didn't know what was going to happen, and it was so unnecessary. And I'm seeing a lot of these kind of strange behaviors that are linked to anger, frustration, and I, I don't know what's going on. And that's why I want to talk to you today about this and give my opinion. So what is going on? What are you seeing in Texas? Well, Sandra, in Dallas, we're seeing an unbelievable amount of road rage. I mean, very serious road rage involving children, people are being killed. It's it's unbelievable. Whether you're in the skies or on your on the road, I think it's the same thing that's motivating that behavior. And I think you mentioned we've been locked down. You know, and I asked myself, have you people just forgotten how to play nice with <laughs> other people? I mean, because we're we're we've come out of 16 months and during those 16 months we've been in a fight or flight mode. We a lot of us have been remote. You know, so we're, we're teed up. We're on edge to start with. And I think, you know, you know, you're going someplace different in the morning that you've never been before. Right. As you get up, you get into a fight with your partner. Then you do a quick email check and you get an email from a colleague that really makes you mad. So you get in your car and you're 10 minutes late and you have no idea where you're going. You start driving. Somebody honks at you, gives you a little hand gesture and you lose it. You just lose it. And I think it's because we're in a more heightened fight or flight stage. We're so reactionary coming out of the last 16 months. See, and, and it's funny because I would think it would be the opposite. I think, you know, like, my gosh, we can shop, you know, we can, we can go out to the beach, you know, we can do all these things that were locked down. But I will tell you that it seemed to me to ramp from zero to 60, like we didn't open up gently. It was like all or nothing. And I went from like waiting, you know, we, we kind of got in that mindset. Like I was at TJ Maxx picking up some stuff for my vacation. Now, normally I would have to wait outside in a long line with my mask. You know, this is California. They let a few people in, a few people out. We got used to that. 
What I wasn't used to was going into the store and having it full and having the lines at the register full. And I know that sounds so silly. I was conditioned to wait outside to get into the store. And then now I'm like, the the dressing rooms are a mess. There's people standing all over. Packages are opened and there's just people everywhere. And that was really stressful for me because I was not prepared for all these people in the store or in the mall or in Walmart, you know, the crowds. And I wasn't prepared for the traffic to get there. I think you make such a good point because we have been locked down and now we're coming out of it. And, oh, we set these expectations. It's going to be so great to go shop and be able to walk around and try something on. And we create these expectations so high. And then we go in and, you know, as you said, the dressing room is a mess. You know, what I've seen a lot in travel and the travel I've done in the last month is a lot of things, a lot of transportation, hotels, restaurants, they're not staffed back at their oh, normal level. No. They're totally understaffed. So they can't meet our expectations, even if we had realistic expectations. But I don't think we do, because I think that level of excitement is there. And we just, you know, we're so ready, but we're ready for what we want. And so is everybody else. Yep. Well, and I think about like, you know, I spent a week working in Minnesota last week and I was in, you know, what, four different hotels over eight days. And it was interesting that some are like, oh, the pool is only open seven hours a day. The gym is open 24 hours, but you need to go down and sign up. And then their problem was the restaurants weren't open. And there was one restaurant open that was dine-in only, and then they only had a concession stand for takeout. Well, if you're a busy worker like I am, you don't get back to the hotel till eight o'clock at night, and they aren't cleaning the rooms unless you request it, and nothing is staffed. And it's open completely, but it's really not. And I think that's been hard for, for I know, me as a consumer to to accept. And I see the clients that come into my practice and there's a lot of frustration and there's a lot of things they're experiencing both on a mental and a physical level that they say, I just don't know why, you know, I don't know why this is happening. I haven't hit my head. I haven't had an emotional trauma. You know, there's, there's not an event that I can point to. And I, then I talk about stress because you and I both know stress will kill you. Oh yeah. Absolutely. And Lee, where does post-traumatic stress fill in the bubbles here? Because what I'm seeing is I've got a couple really good friends in New York City who were highly traumatized. What I think of one of my friends who's, um, who's, apartment overlooked one of the hospitals where all the morgue trucks were lined up and, you know, very, very difficult situation. And then COVID ripped through her building and killed like two people on one floor, her neighbor to the left died. So, you know, this is some pretty heavy duty stuff. So now that everything is quote unquote, returning to normal, where does the trauma 
fit in. You know, we lost someone on our street. We lost a 56-year-old mom on our street. That rocked every mom in the neighborhood. That rocked all the kids who were friends with, with you know, with, with her children. And that doesn't just evaporate because things open up. No, it doesn't. And, you know, that trauma lives at the subconscious. And, you know, the brain really has an interesting way of processing what's going on. It writes these stories. And it doesn't really care if those stories are accurate or not. It's what it cares about is it fills in the blanks and it processes what have happened. So when you're in that tra- stuck in that trauma state, that brain's just pulling all the negative, all the negative that's around you. What's going on outside my window? What's going on next door to me? What's going on inside my head? And it just, it creates all that negative psychology. And that stays on the subconscious level. On a conscious level, we'll say, well, I don't want to think about that right now. You know, I'll push those thoughts down. Go away, go away. I don't want to think about that right now. But on a subconscious level, it it just continues to be there. And, you know, you can push it down, but it'll be back. And when it comes back, then that that puts you back into that trauma state. And, there, you know, the body keeps score. Trauma lives in the body. It remembers, what did I smell when that was happening? Mm-hmm. And what did I see? And what did I hear? I mean, it, it, the body keeps the score. It's not just what we think. It's everything going on around us. So would it be safe to say, because I, I, you know, I like real life examples that if this lady looks out her window in the morning and sees that hospital, you know, would that be a reminder if she goes down and smells, you know, uh, she said it smelled horrible with all these body trucks that, you know, is, is something she'll never forget. So if something triggers that, would that bring back and would that cause like, you know, her to be tired or depressed? Like not everybody acts out, you know, like road rage. Some people go inward like this, this friend of mine, she goes inward and she tells me it's hard to get up in the morning. It's she's so frightened about everything and she's so overwhelmed and she's not working. Lee, it's not like she's got five kids. She doesn't have a job. She's retired, but she reports all these feelings of overwhelm. Well, and she just shuts down when she gets overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. And then that, you know, that puts you into that depressed state. You know, when you get the brain is your central nervous system. You've got the autonomic nervous system controlled by the brain that controls the body. And when you, you know, you've got the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. And when that sympathetic takes over, you get in that fight or flight. But when the parasympathetic takes over, you just go numb. You just want to lay on the floor and get in that fetal position and rock yourself. And I'm sure it sounds like that's what she's experiencing. And that window of tolerance is very narrow. So, you know, it's hard to keep that autonomic nervous system in balance. And you can be triggered. It's a really windy day. And so you're just smelling what's more of the city. And that, that triggers those smells that you had before. And you, you can be triggered by very subtle things. It doesn't have to be the exact same thing. Gotcha. Gotcha. And there are people who go inward and there are people who go outward. And what do people do that, that have a healthier relationship with their trauma, if that can happen? Well, I think you have to process that trauma. You know, some people will journal. Some people hate to journal. Can't tell you how many people have told me that. 
Don't use the J word with me. Okay. Okay. But you know, some people will journal. Some people will, will go to prayer. Some people will meditate. Some people will put on really soothing, comforting music for themselves. Some people, and I think one of the best things to do is just focus on your breathing. You know, slow that breath down. You slow your breath down, you slow your heart rate down. You get that breath rate and that heart rate to dance together and you create heart rate variability. And that's a feeling of wellness. So there are some things that we can do. But it, I mean, when, when you're in that state of trauma, it's hard to say, okay, I'm going to focus on my breathing. I'm going to put my hand on my belly. I'm going to feel some action. I'm going to feel that stomach go in and out because we're, we're not there. We're more caught up in how we're feeling. And it, when you're by yourself, like your friend, you don't have anybody that can be right there and say, hey, you've got that deer in the headlight look. So walk outside with me. Let's get some fresh air. You know, have you had any water today? Stay hydrated. The brain is, is 70% water. And when you get dehydrated, where do you think it hits? Gotcha. Now, so that's all well and good for people to do on their own. You own the Brain Performance Center. And so I know you have have programs that can help people um, and you can you can help them long distance or they can come in and travel, you know, and work with you. What are some type of programs that either they could come to you for or look in their local area for that can help some of this rage or depression or, you know, as we come out, I do think many, many people are suffering from the post-trauma of COVID. I agree with you. You know, and it's all about calming that brain down. And there's different ways that we come at it. There are a number of things that I use. I use creating neuroplasticity in the brain. And that's the ability to change. We use neuromodulation. Once we figure out what that brain needs through an assessment, we can use different mechanisms to send that to the brain. And, you know, if you don't have enough good calm processing power, it's going to be hard to stay calm. We can send that to the brain. We can teach the brain to operate in a regulated way with neural feedback. We can do some performance coaching some strategizing. We can do some cognitive behavioral therapy. Negative thoughts create negative feelings, creates negative behavior. All of those things. And, you know, when you're in a depressed state or even a really anxious state, you need someone to help you through it. I mean, I'll give people some ideas, you know, doing a Zoom call, doing a performance coaching session. And afterwards, they'll say, you know, now that I think about it, I could have thought of that on my own. And so, of course, you could have. I don't do rocket science, but you've got, you've got to get that brain calm enough to be able to process what's going on around it to move through it. Right. Well, and, you know, we all know, like, if you're rushing and you're anxious and upset, you're going to leave your keys, you're going to forget your purse, you're going to forget stuff as you go out the door. That's the best analogy I can have when, you know, so how are we supposed to in a highly anxious or highly emotional state or a very depressed state to, to think clearly, you know, yes, all the answers are within us, but they might be buried under lots of trauma or lots of, of, um, and, or maybe bad modeling. You know, I was talking to Aaron Carey, a common friend of both of ours on Sparking Wholeness the other day, and we were talking about how we learn to navigate 
change. We learn to navigate um, trauma a lot of times from our parents. And if you had, like in my case, I had German and Polish parents, very stoic. You know, you don't talk about it. You, if you don't talk about it, it never happened. Well, unfortunately, we know that's not true. And, you know, and then yet I married into a culture that was more um, emotional and everything was a drama, you know, everything was, you know, and so I kind of look at, you know, where I am now going, where is the happy set point between you know, stoic, because there are some times you need to be stoic. You can't be all weirded out with your kids. You've got to have a little bit, you know, better control there. You can't do that at work, but you also can't be falling apart and emoting everywhere to everyone around you, or you'll find yourself completely alone. Well, you're right. You know, what we see, the, the, what we see modeled for us, that's what we grow up with. That's our kind of default mode. And we have to make a conscious effort to, you know, check in with ourselves and say, Lee, is that the way you want to react in that situation? And, and if it's not, then we have to figure out how do we want to react? One of the most challenging groups for me to work with are people that grew up with narcissistic parents. Mm-hmm. They're, if they, they only know two words, do better. Or, th- or three words, not good enough. And when you have that self-talk going in your brain consistently, you're striving for almost a fantasy. You're striving to be perfect. And perfectionism, it's a state that is not real. And that's one of the hardest things, I think, for people to, to, you know, that all or nothing thinking. And to be able to see, it doesn't have to be black or white. I can see some gray in there. And that can be really hard. Well, it is, you know, as someone who was married to a, like a card carrying full, you know, LA court certified narcissist, there was always the carrot in front of me, you know, like the donkey with the carrot that keeps walking, but he never reaches the carrot. And, you know, that was me. And I think in some ways that was me as a little kid too, because, you know, there's, there's levels of narcissism in people and recognizing that, you know, your commander father might have some of those traits and there's always, you know, get better, better, better. Um, I think that's why some people are so hard on themselves and they do, though achieve greatness like there's a flip side you know that that carrot and stick thing does force you to to be better do better and so you do achieve more however at what cost and i think that's the thing when you're recovering from the covid-19 trauma how fast can I get over this? Or it really didn't matter for me. Oh no, it was good for me. You know, my company role, like, you know, you hear these things and you know, it was bad for everybody on some level. So to acknowledge that you can really see the difference between complete denial and that I'm somehow superhuman and can transcend all these things. I mean, these are things that get in our way and they don't mean to, but they're there. And, you know, one thing that the pandemic did, it hit us on a community level because, you know, can't go to the gym. Not that I go to the gym to talk to people, but I go to the gym to work out with other people around me. Couldn't go to church. And so many, their sense of community lies around their church. And with kids, couldn't go to school. Right. Can't mix households. Can't see your grandparents. I mean, our, our... the way that we relate and the way that we interact was changed so dramatically 
that how can we not be affected by it? Right. Right. I mean, I look at my kids, you know, they missed prom, they missed, you know, dances, and they missed that window of first love for a lot of them. You know, because you want to go to high school and, you know, your ninth grade, 10th grade, ooh, you're all of a sudden a big school and you have a crush on somebody and like all of that was <laughs> shut down. And that's really hard, I think, for the social development of those high school kids. Oh, I agree. And, and I even think it's harder for the younger kids because that's, you know, we talked about modeling behavior. You go to school and you don't have an older brother or an older sister. Right. So how do you know how to act in second or third grade? You learn that from your classmates. So that lack of just social interaction and being able to, I think how lonely it would be to go up in my room and sit in front of a computer and try to learn something. Yep. Well, and if you had any sort of, you know, difficulty, since I have two school-age kids, a lot of their peers are not self-learners. They're not self-starters. They need personal instruction. They need help. And what I saw was after about a month, the whole family give up. You know what? We're just going to scratch second grade. And I have neighbors, you know, we were trying to help tutor this little boy and he was getting so frustrated because we had to do the tutoring outside because he couldn't come in our household because of my dad. Like, you know, so we're sitting out at the picnic table, you know, the three of us trying to help this little boy who struggles with reading on a good day. And he's in first grade and, you know, and second grade, you know, during this time period. And the parents are like, you know what, we're just going to wash it. And if he has to stay back a year, he'll stay back a year. But I saw a lot of people just giving up because you can't you can't work and 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 you know take care of kids and teach i have a friend who's a fabulous hr executive and she's got the most lovely kids and during a zoom she threw a shoe at her own kid <laughs> to tell him to stop making noise and she called me she's like Sandra I've lost my mind and I said what's the matter and she goes I threw a shoe at my seven-year-old because I guess she kept motioning him to be quiet be quiet be quiet she didn't want to throw like a stapler at him that could hurt so she took off her shoe and threw it at him and you know for a whole day he's walking around going mom hit me with a shoe and you know we laugh about these things because I think they're hilarious but not if you got hit with the shoe not if you're the second grade boy who's trying to do his homework and making some noise and being all of a seven or eight year old absolutely you know and when you got kind of go global with that thought in the state of Texas we do standardized testing and the, the standardized testing has been done so poorly the scores have they have our in the city of Dallas, they've already put together a plan on what they're going to do when they bring kids back into the school to just get them up to where they're supposed to be. Right. And how do you think that makes you, when I'm going to school, think, well, I'm not even where I'm supposed to be. What does that do with my self-confidence? How am I thinking about, yeah, I'm going to take that AP class. Um, So it's affected us. I think not just you in California, me in Texas, but really everywhere. Right, right. And and certain things like, you know, going to the DMV were a nightmare, you know, trying to get your kid turned 16, which we had my kid turned 16 in COVID. And the state's like, well, you have to have, you know, three driving lessons before you can take your license. Nope, sorry. You know, 
we can't do that. So kids were delayed getting their license for a year. And it's all these shifts that, that, you know, everybody has something, you know, a 15 year old, 16 year old, they're all excited to get their license. They've been thinking about it for years. Nope. And no for 14 months, not like, no, wait till Saturday, wait till next month, wait till you turn 16 and a half. No, you're just waiting every day. And I think the uncertainty, um, you know, there's three markers that I think for success in life, you have to have perseverance, you have to have resiliency. And, um, you know, and you have to be able to manage uncertainty. And uncertainty, I think, is the hardest of the three. I agree with you. I have three markers, too. Mine are much simpler than that. One, you have to have something to do. Two, you have to have something to love. And three, you have to have something to look forward to. And that's what I saw that we really have not had is something to look forward to. Like right. you said, it's, it's not like on Saturday, we'll go do this. Or next week, we'll go do this. It's like, I don't know. I don't know when we'll go do it. Right. Right. I don't know when you're going to see your grandpa. I don't know when you're going to see your aunts and uncles. I don't know when you're going to see your cousins. And that was true of people in the same town. Well, and that, that, that certainly in the same town and, and, you know, what really broke my heart during the pandemic were the old, the senior citizens that were in assisted living. They couldn't see their family. They couldn't have dinner. I had a girlfriend that literally, she would go stand outside her mom's window and wave at her. Oh, yeah. Just, just, she said, Lee, it, just for her to see me makes, brightens her day so much that I'll go out there and I'll just stand and wave and I'll make funny faces and I'll bring different stupid hats. You know, it's like I'm trying to entertain with her. I'm trying to connect with her any way that I can. Yep. Yep. I had relatives who lost their spouses after 60 years. There was no funeral. The cremation was done privately. The burial was put off because they were burying too many bodies. And, you know, we would have to go to my uncle Stan's and bring food and leave it on the table, you know, leave it on the porch for him and then walk back. And then he would come and, and pick it up. And I did this for some people in my town too. Some of the elderly people I'd make cookies or I'd make a sandwich, you know, something I'd tell them I'm going to bring it over. And it was like the weirdest thing. I put it on their porch and then I leave and stand literally at the driveway, wave to them, they wave back. And the kids and I did that for the, we have like 25 elderly friends in our town. That was our Christmas mitzvah this year. We baked Christmas cookies. We put these ba little plastic baskets together and we rang the doorbell and literally ran. But you know what, what a great memory for you. And it was a really cool one. And what a great memory for them to open the door and to have some Christmas cookies waiting, homemade. Yep. So, you know, there's goodness. There is goodness around. And I think that's the hardest thing is now we're done with it. We're so done with it that we need to stop and, and, and reflect back and think, you know, there's got to be three good things that happened yeah. while, during this pandemic. I actually painted and I, I completed a painting and I framed it and it's hanging in my office. Uh, it's, you know, so I mean, there's, there are some good things. Will I ever paint another one? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But, and the name of that painting was my heart and soul. Oh, I love so, that. There's goodness around us that happened. Um, 
But when your heart is hurting and when you're afraid of the next, what the next day is going to bring, it's hard. It's hard to remember that goodness. It is. It is. But I do see, I will tell you, on the flip side of the people like running red lights, driving like lunatics on the freeway, you know, being mad all over the place doing these things. I've also seen a return to manners, a return to kindness, which out here in California, it's such a melting pot. It gets a little weird, like, you know, with certain customs of opening the door for a lady, some groups do it, some don't. What I found though, is as I grocery shop, or like, even when I was in TJ Maxx, I needed to get my little cart through, you know, to the travel section. And a guy's like, oh, let me move this for you. Let me, you know, and we're talking to each other where we normally would have blown by. And I said to this young man, he was looking at the backpacks and I said, excuse me, I need to get my cart around you. And he goes, oh, ma'am, I'm so sorry. Let me, he goes, let me move this. And we had this whole exchange and I can promise you before COVID, I would have just taken my cart and kind of inched around him, said nothing. He might have looked up at me, said nothing. There's a lot more chit chat in lines out here, people waiting and talk at the pump, just craving human connection. I think you're right. That's what we've all missed is just being able to walk up to somebody, uh, you know, that we don't even know and, and say, Hey, how are you? You know, how's this working for you? Um, yeah. it, it's interesting. It gets, you know, I find to be isolated can get very, very lonely and very boring. Very. And when I'm bored. I'm dangerous. Yep. And I noticed yesterday, you know, I've been in the medical center for 14 months with my cancer treatments, and now I don't have my treatments anymore, but I still need to go in for blood tests and, you know, pick up meds sometimes. And I was there yesterday at the medical center. And normally when I would go into this huge Los Angeles medical center, everybody's like on their phone, they're, you know, they're not feeling well, the lines are long, people are grumpy, and I saw some people just walking through and smiling. And the one lady said to her husband, I'm so glad to see everybody in the medical center because it was really creepy and eerie to go in for your treatment. And the whole place is empty, except for the part that's cordoned off for COVID, you know, the, you know, treatments on one side, COVID's on the other. And, you know, the, the, chit chat that's happening. I stood in line and I didn't instigate. I was like my own little Petri test, you know, my little test and, and, you know, the line, the line was very long. So I just kind of smiled and looked around and the lady behind me is talking about my bag. She liked my bag. You know, the lady in front of me is like, oh, isn't it great that we can come in and pick stuff up again? I know they can mail it, but, but I like to get out and pick up my own medications. Like that would never happen. The, the, the gratitude that you have that people are there and that you can go in a medical center of all places. Well, and same thing about a grocery store. I, I can remember when I could go in a grocery store and I didn't have to wear a mask. And I can remember, maybe I went a little overboard, but I can remember when I brought my groceries home, I set them out in the garage, yep. wiped off everything before I brought it in the house. Sure. And just the joy, it's just so joyous just to go into the grocery store and buy what I need and go home and use it. Mm-hmm. So we have much to be grateful for. Yep. And I think that, Every day, I try to think of three things that I'm grateful for. And it's the little things. It's the, it's not, 
I haven't had anything grandiose, you know, that I'm grateful for um, in a while. But it's those little things. Oh, they let me pull out in front of them. Or they held the door for me. Yes. Or, you know, I got the nicest email. So it's the little things. Yeah. And what does gratitude do to the brain? Does that change anything in the brain? Well, I think that, that gratitude, number one, I think there's a great heart-brain connection, just like there's a gut-brain connection. There's a lot of research that shows that the heart is the second brain. Um, so I think that anytime you you feel that gratitude, and it, to me, that's a feeling that brings a smile to my face. And sometimes I shut my eyes, but it's a feeling. And when when you feel that, it registers in the brain. It calms that brain down. And, you know, when that brain is in a certain state, we've got all these neurotransmitters and dopamine. Dopamine is the molecule that makes us happy. And there's certain parts of the brain that release dopamine. So certainly gratitude impacts the brain. Wow. Because, you know, my mom would always have us do our prayers at night. You know, we were raised in a Christian household. So get on your knees, kids, do your prayers. And then she would have us say what we're grateful for. You know, I'm grateful for mom and dad. I'm grateful for the food. But sometimes I'd be like, I'm really grateful that my bed is warm because my sister would get in the bed before me. So I'd be like, I'm grateful that my sister Susan gets in the bed before me. I don't have to get in on the cold sheets. And I think of all these silly little things that I was grateful for. But I also think about what a good mood it put me in before going to sleep. Absolutely. You know, and when you're in a good mood, have you ever gone to sleep in a bad mood? Oh, yeah. Thinking of thinking about something that the next day you're going to have to do and you wake up and you know exactly how you're going to do it. Yeah. That, sub, that subconscious never turns off. So, I mean, to go to sleep in a good mood and create good energy far outweighs going to sleep in a bad mood. Well, yeah, you go to sleep in a bad mood, you wake up, your hands are tense, you know, like your whole body's tense, you don't sleep well, you toss and turn. And what a great, what a great tip for our listeners today to just do three things you're grateful for before you go to bed. Absolutely. And it doesn't matter if it's the same three things, three days in a row, there's about the third day, I'm just even more grateful. (laughs) I love that. I love that. Well, Lee, I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful we got together in Las Vegas. You got an award recently. What was that award for? Matt, well, thank you for asking. That was for the top 100 healthcare visionaries. And it was great to see you there and to share that time with you. That made it even more special. Me too. I was so proud of you. And if you guys like what you hear today, you can check out the Brain Performance Center. You can also uh, contract Lee for a wide variety of services. I encourage you guys to check that out. And I'm so grateful, Lee, that you came on the show with me today that we could do a show that serves both our audiences because this topic is super important. It is. Thank you so much for sharing your time with me, Sandra. All right. So you guys, Lee and I will be back again next week on our respective shows and make it a good one. On behalf of Lee Richardson and the Brain Performance Center, we want to thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more episodes like this, visit us on iTunes, Google Play, Toginet, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spotify, 
and thebrainperformancecenter.com. 